Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Rossin to the Rescue, my podcast about the secrets to avoiding everyday dangers and worst case catastrophes. I'm Jeff Rossin. You may have seen me on NBC's Today Show. I'm a host of the Rawson Reports, a consumer investigation segment. My new book, Rawson to the Rescue, is out now. And in this podcast, I take you behind the scenes, share some personal stories, some anecdotes I've seen I couldn't say on television, and share some life-saving advice, which we can all use. Today, Kara and I are sharing some life-saving advice when it comes to planes, trains, and automobiles. Jeff, you fly a lot as a reporter for NBC, right? Yeah, like three to four days a week. Some day, some day, some weeks, five days a week. Wow. I'm on an airplane traveling. It's the only thing keeping my marriage together. Me being gone. And obviously, we never want to think about this happening. But what are you really supposed to do in case of a plane crash? Uh, well, the first thing you want to do is listen to the flight attendants. I made this big mistake for because I travel so much. When the flight attendants go into their whole thing, I'm like. Zoning out, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm reading books, magazines, anything except listening to the flight attendants. Um, and I thought I knew everything. I, you know, blah, 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 I get it, I'm in an exit row. If we're on a crash, open the door. Well, it turns out, you know, I went to Delta, led us into their big flight training academy. They gave us rare access to all of it. And uh, it was pretty shocking. Um, I, we, we practiced. I sat in an exit row, and the flight attendant walks up and says, okay, um, in my research for the book, okay, um, what do you do? I, I'm like, well, if we're in a crash, I open this door just like this, and that's the end of it. She goes, no. I said, but no, 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 you're wrong, because whenever I'm sitting on a plane in an exit row, they walk up. You know how they walk up to you, and they're like, are you guys okay? And you have to say yes. Are you guys okay to open the door in case of emergency? And I said, so what's that about? She goes, no, 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 you're not listening carefully enough. What we say is, are you able to open this door if you're instructed to in case of an emergency? Big difference there. They don't want passengers opening doors of planes even after a crash. Why? Because there could be fire right outside that door. Maybe they want that door to stay closed. So right straight away, I thought I knew something that I was wrong about that could have gotten me and my fellow passengers killed. I would have crashed and opened that door, if I was lucky enough to survive the crash, and try to get out. That is not what you're supposed to do. They want you to listen to the flight attendants. So that's straight away, number one, listen to the flight attendants. I'm always so curious about turbulence because it's something that so instantly triggers people's fear response. But is it really that dangerous? Turbulence won't bring a plane down. I try to. I have a producer named Giovanna who's all over the book because we take a lot of our travels together. And Giovanna is terrified of flying, and she travels with me several days a week. So it's it's always fun. Um, she's always texting me from the plane, you know, like, "Oh my god, oh my god, what was that bump? What was that? Are we going down? What's that? The wing is shaking. Why are we shaking?" Here's the thing: I'm actually a private pilot. Um, I'm an instrument-rated pilot myself, so I have a little more knowledge about this than the average traveler. But what I can tell you is turbulence is not going to bring the plane down. It's very normal. In fact, I interviewed a pilot 
um, for NBC. And I asked about that, and he gave me the greatest analogy. He said, when you're on the water in a boat, you're bouncing on the waves, right? And we don't think twice about that because we can see the waves. We can see the water. And so it makes sense the boat would sort of go up and down on the water. It's the same thing with a plane. Turbulence are just different. It's just different air pockets, and you're riding the waves of air. You just can't see it, so it doesn't make any sense to us. Our brains can't put that together. Why are we bouncing? It looks completely clear outside. But truthfully... Air patterns, you know, air is crashing into each other, and you're riding the waves of air. That's all turbulence is. So you're actually safe during turbulence, except if you're not wearing your seatbelt, because you can actually hit the ceiling or fall down. That's the real danger of turbulence. So that's why the captain says, wear your seatbelt when the seatbelt sign is on, and even if it isn't when you're sitting in your seat. I think that's great advice. That's what will save you. When you hear about turbulence injuries, it's from people hitting the ceiling, not from the plane going down. What are some other plane scenarios people might want to know about or ways that you can keep yourself safe when you're traveling? Well, can we talk about germs? Gross. Germs on planes? Because I did a whole thing in the book about uh, we swab for germs on planes. And uh, the dirtiest areas are, well, I'll tell you the dirtiest area. You know where it is? I don't even want to think about it. The tray table. The tray table is one of the dirtiest areas. You know why? We interviewed a flight attendant for the book, you know, sort of behind the scenes, gross stuff. Um, she said people, that's so disgusting, people change their kids on those tray tables because they don't feel like getting up and going to the bathroom in the tiny little bathroom. So they literally put the tray table down and put the baby and the poopy on and the diaper on the tray table and change them right there. And let me tell you something. These cleaning crews come in when the plane lands, and they're like, you know, picking up all the garbage. But I promise you, they are not going to every single tray table and and you know, sanitizing them. Well, I will now be doing that, at least on my own. Bring Purell, bring sanitary wipes, bring all of that stuff, because it's pretty disgusting. The armrest, the seat buckle, all of it can be pretty germy. So other than some of those mundane issues around germs and turbulence, which is inconvenient, but not that scary. Not mundane. All right, I won't say that. (laughs) We got to transfer back to to deadly crashes. Um, Okay, Okay, the better. All right. Plane crashes aren't that common, but there is sadly another type of crash that is, which is train crashes. Where's the safest place to sit on a train and what are some safety issues that people can keep in mind? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Because when you get on a plane, you get all the instructions from the flight attendants. When you get on a train, nope, nothing. Just sit down and do your thing. So you don't know what to do. So if there's a crash, you know, they have the little the little instruction thing on the side of the train inside next to each door, but who really reads that? So I've read it for you. Um, The safest place to sit on a train? Look, it depends on the crash, but overall, experts tell us the middle of the train is probably the safest place to be because if there is a crash, chances are it's going to be from the front, hitting a car, hitting another train, or in the back, another train coming and slamming into you or something like that. So chances, and that's where all the force is going to be. So, And those are the cars that derail first and that kind of crash. So chances are the middle of the train, the experts say, is the best. Something else they say to do is to sit backwards on the train because if there is a front crash, instead of flying forward, you'll, fl- you'll be pushed back into your seat instead, which could be a little safer. And in case there is a crash, what should you do? Yeah, so um, we we talk in the book and we've shown on NBC every window, and it's very, very easy. I want you to look at every train window next time you're on one. There's a little red handle usually, and it's connected to the rubber that's sort of around the window. 
those windows aren't sealed in there like your windows at home or something or a plane window. They're meant to be pulled, you know, they're meant to be an escape route. So you can pull that and you can literally easily pull the right. Kids could probably do it. It's that easy. You can actually easily pull the rubber right off around the window edge from that red handle. And then you pull the window in carefully, look down. It's usually like a six to eight foot drop. So you want to be careful about getting out and get down. You want to make sure when you do that, that there's not a third rail. In several sections of the country, there's a third rail that carries the electricity. You don't want to jump onto the third rail because then you will have survived the crash but then get killed by electrocution. The other thing you want to do is once you get down, look both ways because you don't want to be hit by an oncoming train on a an adjacent track. So those are, those are some ways to escape a train crash. We'll be right back after this. Our final topic today is automobiles, and I'm one of those New Yorkers that never learned to drive. So I'm particularly intimidated by all the things that can go wrong when you're in a car. Yeah, and I want to actually add some report, add some fear to you a little bit now, <laughs> but also help at the same time. Uh, we show you how to get out of an ice skid, which is one of the scariest things that can happen, especially if you're driving in the north uh, or the Midwest where you can get a lot of icy roads. Here's a little clip from the audiobook for some help on that. At times, the road can seem like a video game when you're dodging flying mattresses, other bad drivers, or a scary patch of ice. What should you do if you're caught in a skid? I travel to Maryland to a specially designed ice driving course where Tom Pecoraro, a former cop and certified driving instructor, gives me the rules of the road. With Pecoraro riding shotgun, I hop behind the wheel, speed up, and immediately hit a patch of ice and lose control. Whoa, I yell out, panicking a bit, struggling to control the car. We spin around like a puck on an ice rink, just gliding across the road. So that was 16 miles per hour, he says. That's it? Yep, and only 16 miles per hour, I lost control. And that's going to take you off the roadway or roll the car over into another vehicle, he says. And if I had been driving at 60 miles per hour on a highway, well, it's going to be that many times worse. Shaken, I hit the gas and again drive through the cold roads. Soon, I hit more ice and make a classic mistake. I jerk the wheel to the side and slam on the brakes. The two worst things you can do, says the former cop. What am I supposed to do, I ask? That's not a rhetorical question. I have no idea. You're supposed to get off the brake, he explains. Get off the accelerator, get off the brake, straighten the wheel, and then ride the skid out. This goes against the driver's instinct, as it's human nature, to pound the brakes when something goes wrong, but that could be deadly. When you jam on the brakes and jerk the wheel, Pecoraro tells me, you're losing more control and you need to have control during the skid. Here's the takeaway. Skid longer, but be in control of it. Own the skid. This way you can steer away from things that are zooming toward you, and you'll regain control when you emerge from the skid. Is that terrifying? Yes. Is that potentially life-saving? Another yes. So now that people know what to do in icy conditions, let's talk about driving while drowsy. This is a real danger, not just to you, but to others on the road. Yeah, by the way, uh, raising my hand, you can't see me, but I'm raising my hand. I, I did it all the time because there's something, I talk about this in the book, isn't this true? There's something about sleeping that makes us feel weak. 
right? Like it's somehow one of the weakest things we do. You can be the strongest personality in the world, but it's like, yeah, I got to lay horizontal for eight hours a night and go to sleep. So I've gotten all these calls from NBC for breaking news in the middle of the night over the years. You know, two in the morning, my phone rings. Three in the morning, you know, get on a plane. You know, they'll call me like, hey, did I wake you? Well, first of all, uh, of course you woke me. It's three in the morning. But I immediately am like, no, 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 not at all. I'm, I'm just sitting here wide awake waiting for your call. There's something about admitting we're tired and sleeping I don't know why. It's but too human. It's too human. And it's almost like a sign of weakness. So we don't do it. But here's the problem. Many of us get behind the wheel for that same reason when we're drowsy. You would never say to your friend, oh, I'm a little drunk. I'm going to get behind the wheel. But somehow we can say to a friend, I'm a little tired, but I'm going to push through and drive there anyway. Um, and the truth of the matter is both are one in the same in many ways when it comes to driving. You are impaired. Uh, we looked into this. When you fall asleep at the wheel, you you actually fall into something called a microsleep. Ever have that happen where you sort of like fall asleep for a second and then like you jolt awake and then you're like, okay, I'm awake now. That's actually not the case. That's something called microsleep and it means you're about to have more of them as well. You're not, you get a shot of adrenaline, but it's about to crash again and you're about to go to sleep again. So driving while drowsy is incredibly dangerous. So many accidents every single year from this. And I just have to tell you, if you're drowsy, don't drive. Don't do it. Pull over. Take an Uber. Take a taxi. That's a wrap on this week's episode. And for everyone listening on your morning or evening commute, make sure to watch The Road too and pull over if you're feeling tired. Yeah, good advice. Thanks for listening, everybody. Leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And check out Rossum to the Rescue at any bookstore. 